To pay or not to pay? That was the question. Jesus was asked, and it was quite a controversial one. And just as a forewarning in today's text, we're going to have to do a lot of looking and considering of what was going on historically at the time. And I want to just disclaim that because normally I'm not, in general, I'm not a big fan of teachings where um, where it comes across like, well, unless you really are a scholar and understand what was happening 2,000 years ago and every detail of that, there's no way you could possibly understand what Jesus is saying here. So I'm, I don't want you to hear that. At the same time, there is some meaning in this that we're going to miss if we don't do a little bit of background and historical context in regards to what was so significant about this question that Jesus was asked in regard to paying taxes. So we're going to start there. We're going to start with a little bit of historical context. What was behind this question? Who was it that was asking him about this? And then we're going to look at some things that we learn from Jesus' answer to the question and then how we might try to apply those that same principle uh, 2,000 years later in our context. And so let's look at this um, historically first. So who was asking Jesus this question about taxes? Verse 15 says this, Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him. So what's going on here is the Pharisees have tried to trip up Jesus before and try to publicly embarrass him by asking him a question that put him in a tough spot, and they failed. And so they send their disciples as a guise to, as someone who maybe comes across to Jesus and his followers, like this guy's, these guys' intentions are not, um, are not full of malice and evil. They're not trying to trip him up. They're just asking a legitimate question. They're just coming to this teacher saying, hey, what should we do about this? So they send their disciples to kind of trick Jesus into not knowing he's being set up for a trap. And then there's this other group of people mentioned, the Herodians, and we don't see them mentioned very many other places in Scripture, but again, do a little research on that, and you find out the Herodians were these guys who were very pro-Rome. Um, Pharisees typically would have been seen as kind of anti-Rome. They, they looked forward to the day that Rome was overthrown. They didn't like the idea of the Herodian family um, under Roman authority sitting on this, this throne and being seen as kind of the king of Israel at the time. Um, they wanted to see the line of David restored. So the Herodians and the Pharisees are people that are, in general, at odds with each other. But as we know, nothing unifies like a common enemy, right? And so, though they are at odds, they have this one man, Jesus, who they seek to destroy and undo and humiliate publicly. So they come together because, on the one hand, if Jesus says to this question about paying taxes, if he says, well, look, yeah, we shouldn't pay this tax because, you know, go Israel, we hate Rome, right? Then the Herodians are there to, like, bust him, right? Because they're there to maybe even enforce some of the Roman law and use that as an accusation against him. So before we go any further, though, let's look at the question they're asking and what this tax actually is. So this tax was a poll tax, something that was paid once a year. And some commentators actually think this was um, a tax that Israel had on itself to go to the temple and the priests. Think of it like almost like a tithe that Rome then came in and said, hey, actually, you're going to pay that to us now. And regardless of whether or not that was true, we know that this poll tax was extremely controversial to Israelites. In fact, there was a revolt in AD 6, so think 25 years before this incident happens, there was a massive national revolt against Rome over this particular 
tax. So this is a sensitive issue. This is a, um, a touchy issue. This is a controversial issue that they're bringing to Jesus. And one of the reasons it was so controversial is that in the Roman um, Empire, the, the Caesars claimed to be of sort of a divine nature, that they were not just to be respected as a human authority, but they were to be, in some sense, worshipped or thought of as being of divine origin or essence. Um, and so a lot of Jews could make a good argument for the idea of, yeah, to pay this tax to Rome, right, to give this tribute to these, these Roman Empire and these rulers is in some sense idolatry because these guys are here and they're kind of claiming to be gods. They're kind of claiming the rights that belong only to Jehovah. So to pay tribute or taxes to them would be in some ways not only a, a, a lack of patriotism to their nationality, but also an offense to their religion. So they're setting this trap. And if Jesus says, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Rome, the Herodians are there, and they're going to likely accuse him and use that to um, um, get him into legal trouble. But if Jesus says yes, then the zealot Jews are going to see him as, as weak and maybe not nationalistic enough or maybe not patriotic or um, maybe even, at worst, like idolatrous for wanting to pay tribute to this Roman emperor who claims divine essence for himself. So they're wanting a one-word answer, just to complicate it, right? That the way the question is posed, it would be the equivalent of us saying, well, should we do this or not? Yes or no, right? They want a one-word answer to this very complex, controversial issue. In verse 17, they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Yes or no, Jesus? So that's the, that's the question being thrown out there, and again, in an effort to trap him and ensnare him. And we're going to see three things about Jesus' answer and how he answers this question about paying taxes. And the first is that, is that he calls out the hypocrisy of the questioners. Look in verse 18. It says, But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? So why would Jesus call them hypocrites? Well, because they were doing two things. Number one, because of the flattery beforehand, right? Y'all catch that in the first verses. Hey, Jesus, look, we know that you are above reproach. You're not influenced by the opinion of man. So tell us about this, right? And Jesus, like, just calls it out on the carpet. Like, enough with that. Like, I know where you come from. I know what you're trying to do here, right? You're, you're not coming in here with this innocent question that you hope to get answers for. This is a trap. So he calls them out for that. And the second thing he calls them out for is just, the, I think, the idea that they're projecting their own struggles and predicaments onto him, right? Because if we know anything about the Pharisees, it's that they care, they care way too much about what people think of them, right? That their, their paths and their decisions are driven and directed by what is going to gain or lose influence for them in the people's eyes. That the very thing they're kind of trying to trap Jesus in is the thing they themselves are most afraid of. And what's interesting about how Jesus responds to this, and again, it's a historical thing that you got to do a little digging to find out, but the, the, the denarius that they used to pay this tax actually had Caesar's image on it, and it had some sort of a he's of divine essence kind of inscription on it. That's, that's the coin. Jesus says, show me a denarius. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Because that was so offensive to Jews, the idea of having a form of, of mint, of, of legal tender 
um, that, would, that would have an inscription like that would be seen as kind of idolatrous. So the Jews were allowed to have their own coins to make their own money to use instead of that. And so when they say, hey, do you want to pay this tax? Jesus says, well, I don't know. Show me, show me a denarius. In other words, hey, I don't, I don't have one of those coins on me. We're, we're probably either, maybe he just, you know, it's a little bit of speculation. Maybe he just doesn't have any money on him, but it could be that they had the the Jewish form of currency, and they just, you know, he didn't have the denarius. So he says, show me denarius. At any rate, the Herodians or the Pharisees pull out this denarius. And so there's kind of this instance of, he's already, he's already called them out on this, right? He's already shown them the very thing you're trying to trap me in, you're already doing, right? If you're going to say it's unlawful or idolatrous to pay taxes to Caesar, you're carrying a coin with this inscription and this ideology on it, right? So he's already kind of calling them out in their hypocrisy. But then he goes deeper and wider than their original question. This is what I love about Jesus' response, is they try to pin him on a yes or no thing, but he refuses to give such a low context answer. And instead, he comes back with an answer that explains not only an answer to their question, which is, yes, you should pay this tax, but why? Verse 20, he says, And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness on the inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar, and by the way, that the language there is give back to Caesar, like this thing came from Caesar to begin with, this coin, so give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So it's a yes, but it's much more than just a yes. One commentator I read put it this way, that the, what Jesus was saying by answering the question this way was this, is that it is possible to pay one's dues both to the emperor and to God. To be both a dutiful citizen and a loyal servant of God. So, remember this too. Rome, as an empire, was not exactly like a, a Boy Scout type um, environment. And, and, and I don't claim to be a historical expert on this, but you just a quick Google search will show you some of these things pedophilia was the norm for Roman men at the time. That that was just considered, as a Roman man, you were on top of the world, the world was at your fingertips, everything was subject to you, so whatever you wanted to do to satisfy yourself was fine. In fact, it was, it's, it's been said that Romans would even um, um, engage with, with prostitutes and, still, and men still be considered virgins. Because that was just like, that was just common. That was just part of life. It was something you did. Women, children had very little, if any, rights and dignity in this society. So, and think about how they would capture other nations, right, and enslave them. And they were doing that to the Jews. Like, this was, this was a terrible, terribly immoral empire. So the idea of paying tribute to this or being like a citizen of this was controversial, and you can see why. And so that was kind of the, the nature of the trap. It says when, when, they, when Jesus answered them in the way they did, in verse 22, it says, when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. And what's really interesting is that later, these same guys who tried to trap him in this, once Jesus was on trial, they would come back and act like Jesus gave a different answer and fell into their trap and to accuse Jesus and justify themselves. Look at this in Luke 23, 2. Again, Jesus is on trial. Probably these same guys or these people who knew about this incident came up and said, and they began to accuse him saying, 
we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So the Pharisees were so frustrated by Jesus's answer and, and his ability to avoid this trap they set for him that they eventually just straight up lied about it in his answer in order to accuse Jesus of treason against Rome. The other thing we see is this provides a very important theological framework for us. Um, this idea that Jesus presents of when put to the, the test on this choice, should you pay this tax or not, basically answers with this idea of, yeah, you can, you can even though despite how evil and wicked the Roman Empire is and the bad things they're doing, go ahead and pay the tax. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but your life belongs to God. In saying that, Jesus was providing a pretty significant statement that would later inform over 2,000 years the theology of the church and how we view what it looks like for us to be, on one hand, citizens of God's kingdom and children of his, but also living under the rule and authority, oftentimes of people who are believing and doing things that are contrary to the Lord's will. And so we're going to just look at four real practical applications. If we can kind of take Jesus' answer to this controversial question, fast forward it 2,000 years and import it into today's world, what would that mean for us? And the first thing is this, is that we may submit to earthly authorities, even evil ones, while still honoring God. So, I mean, the most direct way to translate this in today's is just with the same issue, right, of taxes. So we could look at this text and very clearly say Christians should pay taxes, right? Like no matter what country you're in, no matter how evil you think the rulers of that country are or how corrupt the system is that those taxes are going to, that it probably wasn't as bad as Rome, right? And Jesus is saying, as a Christian, you should do your duty in the civil manner and pay taxes. But it can go beyond that, right? I mean, what, what about loyalty and allegiance to our country, what about loyalty and allegiance to a country that, we would, that you would consider ungodly and profane and against the kingdom of God and contrary to Christian values? Well, consider this. Imagine in, um, one of the Roman soldiers, right, um, comes up to John the Baptist and basically says, John, what do I need to do to be doing the works of God and to repent? And what does John the Baptist tell the Roman soldier? Tells them basically, hey, don't, don't cheat people and take advantage of people. Don't abuse your authority is essentially his answer. It's interesting that John the Baptist does not say, well, first of all, you need to find a new job. Because if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to be a part of God's kingdom, you cannot do that and be a soldier representing and promoting the values and ideology of this wicked empire. You could almost make the argument that you would almost expect John the Baptist to say that, right? Especially given how the Romans were treating the Jews at the time, right? Like that uniform is inconsistent with what it means to live a life that's honoring to God. But he doesn't say that. He just basically gives him, he gives him room in the context he is in culturally and politically to follow Jesus and live a life that honors God in that setting, I'll give you a more recent example of what this might look like. 
How many of you have read the book um, Unbroken about Louis Zamperini? Anybody in here? Terrific book. Really, really highly recommend it. Um, just fantastic story. Don't, don't watch the movie. The movie like leaves out the, the essence of what the book is trying to capture. Um, but fantastic story. And, and I won't give away the whole thing, but at the beginning of it, this guy, Louis Zamperini, he's a World War II guy. He's in, a, he's in a plane. They crash in the Pacific Ocean, and he's on a life raft, and they set some record that I think is still held for longest survival on any life raft when you're abandoned like that. It's like weeks and weeks. Eventually, they drift over into Japanese territory where they're captured and imprisoned. And immediately, um, the Japanese soldiers are just abusing them, like in horrific ways, injecting experimental treatments into them, um, spraying them down, just beating them, just all kinds of terrible, terrible treatments they're enduring. And then one day, this guard comes up to their cell, and he says, you, you know, in broken English, right, you Christian? And they really, you know, probably wouldn't have said yes in normal circumstances, but culturally at that point, they were kind of Christian, like, oh, yeah, sure. And he's like, me, me Christian, too. And he begins to have this friendship with them. And I want you to read what... Um, this author who writes this documentary says about this, says, the guard gave his name, which Louis would later recall with some uncertainty as Kawamura. He began babbling in English so poor that all Louis could pick out was something about Canadian missionaries and conversion. The guard slipped two pieces of hard candy into Louis's hand, then moved down the hall and gave two pieces to Phil. A friendship was born. Kawamura brought a pencil and paper and began making drawings to illustrate things he wished to talk about. Walking back and forth between the cells, he'd draw a picture of something, a car, a plane, an ice cream cone, and then say and write its Japanese name. Louis and Phil would then write and say, the English, sorry, then write and say the name in English. The prisoners understood almost nothing of what Kamura said, but his goodwill needed no translation. Kalamura could do nothing to improve the physical conditions in which the captives lived, but his kindness was life-saving. It's just interesting that you could look at that situation one of two ways, right? You could look at that situation and go, this was like World War II, where the Japanese were allies with Nazi Germany, right? And yet this guy who's a Christian serving in the Japanese army finds a way in his context to be as kind and loving to these prisoners that he could. Now, you, you could look at that and go, well, that, that guy really wants to follow Jesus. He needs to denounce that government, denounce that army, walk away from that, and try to get those guys out of that cell. But that would be like saying John the Baptist should have told the Roman soldier, take off that uniform, drop that, and move on. Jesus' answer opens up some room for us to follow Jesus in different political contexts, even when that political context is riddled with evil and oppression and things that are not of the Lord. That there's room in this for a guy like this to, though he is a Japanese person imprisoning these guys, to live in that context in a way that honors God as best as he knows how. That it is not incongruent of us as Americans, even though we would all say our nation either is doing or has done some very bad, wicked, immoral things, that there is corruption in our government. 
to put on a uniform and serve the country is not incongruent with being a follower of Jesus. Now, there does come a time to to take a stand, right? We see that in the book of Acts. We see the disciples, when they're told to stop talking about Jesus, that's when the line is crossed, and they say, no, we're not going to do that. You can throw us in prison. You can beat us if you want, but we are not going to stop talking about Jesus. So I don't mean to I don't mean to take a complicated issue here and try to simplify it. It is a complicated issue, but, but Jesus' answer leaves a lot of room where we would maybe want to draw a hard line. Second thing I want us to see is that our primary citizenship is not on earth. When Jesus said, gives to Caesar the things that, things that are Caesar's, he means a coin. So he's basically saying, hey, look, they, they made this. That's fine. Give it back to them. But render to God your life, who you are, the things that are God's. So one of the things we see from this is that we should not put our ultimate hope or identity in who we are as a country, as a people, or a certain political party, that that is not the essence of who we are, that beyond and above being American or a Republican or Democrat or whatever else other thing, a Texan even, that you identify as, beyond and above that, you are a citizen of God and His kingdom, that the Bible describes us as Christians as as passing through this world as exiles, that this world is not our home, so it's not where our core identity lies. At the same time, we do have a foot in both worlds. So our our response to this, and Jesus' answer here, the fact that we are not citizens of this, our response is not to then remove ourselves and isolate ourselves out of this wicked, political, whatever government world setting that we live in. It's not to just pull away and say, well, that's not where I live. That's not my citizenship. My citizenship is in heaven, so we're going to do our thing. And whatever happens in this world... That's up to the world. That's up to those who consider this their home. No, that is not what Jesus is saying, and it's not historically what the church has done. By saying, give, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus is saying, look, you've got a foot in both worlds here. St. Augustine talked about this in his book, The City of God, where he talked about how we are both citizens in the city of God and in the city of man, that we as Christians are living with a foot in both worlds. That our response is not to isolate and check out, but to, as citizens of God's kingdom, seek the betterment of the society and the world that we live in here on this earth. And the cool thing about the church history is that Christians have historically done a pretty good job of this. Now, the, the church, like anyone else, has had some bad apples and it's had some dark times. There's been some things in church history that we look at and we're kind of ashamed of. Guys, but on the whole, and I bring this up because I feel like so much of what we hear in the media and just from, from the world, right, is how terrible and awful the church is and how bad it's failed and how many people it's hurt. But if you really consider church history and the way Christians have shaped the thinking and context and, and even just ideological framework of the world we live in, particularly for us Western civilization, it's really staggering. I didn't have time to read the book. I was looking into this and I came across this uh, book that was released a couple years ago by Tom Holland, this uh, famous British historian. And the name of the book is this, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Written by an atheist. Isn't that crazy? This, 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 this is a pronounced 
blatant like atheist is saying Christian thought and values completely remade the world from what you had in pagan Rome, right? Where again, pedophilia was the norm. How did we get from there to where we are now, where we would cringe at the idea of something like that being legal or normalized? Think for a minute about all the different charities you see, even just in our context in America, right? Think about um, crisis pregnancy centers. Think about disaster relief organizations, people who come in when, there's, when someone is hurting and really provide help and relief for those people. Um, think about refugee resettlement organizations like the guys we work with at Launchbox, whether it's Catholic Charities or World Relief. Who do you see engaging and bringing relief to the hurting in our culture? It's Christians. I mean, yeah, you you have some other people helping with those sorts of things, but by and large, primarily what you see is that the idea of Christian charity, even the idea of that we ought to be considerate of and give attention to the least of these and not just dismiss them and move on with our lives, is in itself a uniquely Christian concept that has woven itself into the fabric of our thinking that affects our values today. So what about us today? I mean, right now, not big picture, macro level, right? What does it look like for us to live as citizens of kingdom in this world? I'm just going to give a few examples. Um, the first thing I put here is the Protestant work ethic, right? That's a, that's a term that's been coined in regards to, at some point in our nation's history, it became known that like Protestants who were following Jesus established a reputation for themselves of being the hardest working most diligent people in the nation in the workforce. That if someone was a Protestant, you would think that person's a good worker. I want them on my team. I want to hire that person. And the same ought to be true for us, right? Those of us in this room, like, we ought to be the people in our workforce that our employers are most glad to have. Or if you're an employer, you ought to be the kind of boss that your employee, like, does not want to walk away from because of how they're treated in your company. That's what it means to have a foot in both worlds. Think about voting and involvement, right? Like, as Christians, we ought to have an interest and be active in, in voting and knowing who the candidates are and what kind of effect that's going to have because we have an interest not just in what's coming in our ultimate home, but also in the world that we live in here and now. I was talking to Emily about this, trying to come up with examples. I like to th- bring her into this whenever I can. So if I say something dumb, she's partly to blame for that too. Um, so we were talking about how um, maybe in our culture, one of the ways you can just stand out as like a bright spot in a world of darkness is by showing love and kindness to those who disagree with you. <laughs> you see, seem to see so little of that in our society, that, that, that our society is so polarized along these different lines and issues that maybe what it means to be a citizen of both worlds is to engage in some of that discussion, not to just pull away from it, but to engage it with some civility and some respect and some love and some kindness towards those who we engage on these issues. There was a, a member of our church recently who... Um, have very strict instructions that she wants to remain anonymous, but she recently wrote a blog post about what to do about Halloween and what we should do about 
this, this holiday that's, if you look at what, how people celebrate Halloween, like you would say, that's very pagan. Like we should in some ways as Christians want to distance ourselves from those ideas and those festivities. Um, but she wrote this article saying, hey, look, like it or not, in our culture, that's happening. And it's, a, it's an opportunity we can use to gather. So she talks about, hey, maybe have a fire pit in your front yard that night so that instead of just stopping by and knocking on your door or moving on, people have a chance to come in, sit down for a sec, rest their legs, and have a s'more, and actually have some good conversation and get to know them. There's all kinds of ways that we should seek to, to better the world around us. Recently, I was encouraged in my neighborhood, um, probably shouldn't word it that way, my, my neighbor's house burnt down. I wasn't encouraged that their house burnt down. Um, three doors down, uh, it's good friends of ours, their house burnt completely to the ground. That part was not encouraging. Um, but what was encouraging was in the aftermath of that to see Somehow Emily and I kind of became the hub of, of like support and communication between us and the rest of the neighborhood on behalf of that family. And just to see like this outpouring of support for this family. And you know what, what we found is it was Christians, right? It was like people going, hey, we saw that. We want to do something to help. And so we went to our Sunday school class and we did this. We went to this group and we did that. But the common theme, what you saw in those who, who rose to the occasion that came to help was they were motivated by this idea of, look, people who, because of their values of following Jesus, want to do something to bring help and relief to those who are hurting around them. That, that the neighborhood is a more supportive and better community to live in because of the Christians that live in that neighborhood. I was going to go on and on with different examples of this, but the general idea here is that our response to the evil and wicked things we see in our world should not be just to pull away and just leave that to the world, but to engage and bring light into those situations however best we can. And then lastly, final application point is this, that we can trust God's sovereignty even when earthly authorities fail us. As at Crosspoint, we, if you've been here a while, you may have noticed we have a tendency to land this plane as far as our sermons go on the gospel, on the work of Jesus on the cross. And the reason for that is when we talk about Christian living, and what it looks like to live as Christians in a world that's dark. Ultimately, what we're looking at is this. When we, talk about, when we talk about the betterment of our society, how we should seek the betterment of our society, this may be kind of a discouraging thought at first, but stick with me. You're ta- what Scripture tells us about our world and its future is pretty grim. We're going to see that later on in Matthew in just a few chapters about how wicked men will rise and things will go from bad to worse. So if you imagine like the moral <laughs> decay of the world on a macro level, it's like an unhealthy stock, right? Where there might be some times when Christians or whoever like interjects some light and good things into that. So they might be going down and we may be able to make some bright spots. But in general, on the whole, the moral status of the world is going to go from bad to worse until Jesus comes back. But our hope isn't in that. If that's, that's not, we're not hoping that's going to take a turn. We're not hoping that, man, if we exercise enough Christian influence, we can turn this world into this utopian. That's not going to happen. 
it's going to go from bad to worse, but our hope is not in the state of this world. Our hope is in that God is sovereign over even the most evil, wicked things that seem like there's no way that could have any place in God's plan. God is using those things to bring about his purposes and his will, and there's no greater example of that than the accusation and crucifixion of Jesus. What could be a more wicked, corrupt, evil thing than for those, the powers that be, to accuse and condemn the only perfect person who ever walked on the face of the earth? That the only guy who truly did nothing wrong was crucified as a criminal. You have to see God's sovereignty in God's hand even over those wicked events and decisions. John 19, Pilate's trying to let Jesus off the hook. He's trying to find a way to alleviate this guy and let him go so that he can wash the blood off of his hands, but Jesus isn't biting. Trying to give him a chance. Say, Jesus, gosh, say something to get yourself off the hook here. So Pilate said to him, you will not, Jesus stays silent, doesn't do that, doesn't defend himself. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Parents feel free, or kids feel free to use that on your parents, right? Next time they say, Hey, I'm the parent, you need to do what I say, you can just say, Hey, look, mom and dad, you would have no authority over me all unless it was given to you from above, right? Don't actually say that, okay? Don't actually recommend that. It's just true enough statement, though, right? But guys, what, what hope is there for us? And I, I don't know about you, I see the more I look at news, watch what's going on in the world, in our country, the easier it is to get discouraged, to think, man, what is going to come of this country, this world, 50 years from now, 100 years from now? How are we going to hang on? What is this going to turn into? What kind of world are my grandkids going to grow up in? I can hope knowing that no matter how wicked and evil the future and the, the authorities and the corruption is thick, no matter how bad things get on that level, I see God's sovereignty turning a very wicked and evil governmental decision into the best thing that's ever happened. What seemed like the worst thing that had ever happened, the worst political authoritarian decision that had ever been made to condemn Jesus to death was actually the best thing that could ever happen for us. So in the midst of that uncertainty and the things we don't like and the things that want to discourage us, let us hold on to the idea that God is sovereign over all of it in ways that we just can't understand but that in the end we know our hope doesn't lie on this world that is going downhill, but that our ultimate citizenship is seated in the heavenly places with Christ because of the gospel. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for giving us, I use the word worldview, but giving us through your word a, a lens through which to see the world, that when we see these discouraging evil things that we have hope in the midst of that and it's not a hope to just buy our time and hope we make it through but but to engage and be bright spots in this darkness while knowing and remembering that our ultimate hope is not in this world but in you and what you've done through the gospel 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen.